0: or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, then, that it is those of faith, or rather, know that then, that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall be all the nations, all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in a book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before the law before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith but the law is not of faith rather the one who does them shall live by them christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree and so that in christ jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's Galatians again, chapter 3, verse 1 through 14. You may be seated. For those of you who are new today, if you would, looking from you. There's...
1: Last week I found out something that I had really kind of always suspected in the back of my mind. I was doing some research online and I found out that the treadmill was originally invented as a form of punishment. (laughs) It was invented in 1817 by a man named Sir William Cubitt to actually be used in prisons in England. And it was used in 44 prisons throughout England. It was made of this wooden wheel that they put on a gear and then they had wooden platform sticking out. So it just kept you walking and walking and walking. And the idea was that it would deter crime because no one wanted to be subjected to this kind of thing. And eventually they made their way to a prison in New York. And eventually they made their way to our basements and our gyms and our luxury hotels. It makes perfect sense, really, now that you think about it. So if you want to experience what prison in 19th century England was like, feel free to find a local gym and pay a few hundred dollars a year.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, I, I make light of it, but in reality, what they went through, what these prisoners went through was nothing like 30 minutes in the gym Listening to music and watching TV. What they went through was truly inhumane, and I'm glad that they banished it. In New York, they would be forced on the treadmill, which was more like a stair stepper, for 10 hours a day. Every day. Can you imagine being handcuffed to a treadmill on an incline for 10 hours a day? It would be physically exhausting, to say the least. And you would do it all day long just to wake up the next day and do it all over again. It's bound to constant striving, always going and going and going, but getting nowhere. There's more you have to do. There's more you have to do. There's more you have to do. How weary and frustrated and depleted you would become. This morning, I would like to suggest that this image is what easily and often happens to us on a spiritual level, handcuffed to a treadmill. I believe the default setting of the human heart is bound to constant striving. We strive for a sense of significance. We strive for a sense of security. We strive for a sense of completion. We strive for a sense that we are okay, and all is right and we are going And going and going, but getting nowhere. We get up and strive for these things all day long just to get up the next day and do it all over again. There's always more you have to do. Listen to this quote by Madonna. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it. And discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting. Unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody. I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. And I guess it never will. No matter what. There's always more you have to do, like being handcuffed to a treadmill. You just keep going and going and going, and it leaves us weary, frustrated, and depleted at a deep heart level. And we must know that it's not only spiritually detrimental, but spiritually dangerous. But we also must know that there is a solution. Our passage today has the key. In Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14, God is calling us out of constant doing, constant striving. In a word, he is calling us to rest. And don't get me wrong, I'm not necessarily talking about physical rest. I think taking a nap and taking a vacation and and taking a break are all helpful, but they're not the lasting solution. They are all important, but not nearly as important as the kind of rest we are talking about today. Galatians 3, 1 through 14 teaches us this, to rest in the gospel. We need to learn every day to rest in the gospel. This is the rest that only God can give and the rest that we desperately need. It's that deep-seated settledness in our souls. Like calm waters instead of choppy seas. Resting in the gospel. But what does it mean? For the remainder of our time this morning, we are going to be taking a closer look at this topic by learning from the three central figures in this passage. The Galatians, Abraham and Christ. And each one will add to and fill out our understanding of resting in the gospel So let's take a closer look now at Galatians 3, 1 through 14. Please join me there if you have your Bibles with you today. And Galatians is found in between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. So far, we have seen that there is a serious problem going on in Galatia. False teachers had come in and they were leading the people astray with a different message. They tried to one-up Paul and to undermine his gospel. And the worst part is... The Galatians had given in. So Paul writes this letter to point them back to the one true gospel. And in the past three weeks, Paul has been defending the gospel through his own credible witness. His coming to Christ, his experience in Jerusalem, and his interaction with Peter. And these events combine to confirm the authenticity of the gospel. But now in chapter 3... He continues to defend the gospel, but his focus turns now away from himself and on to the three central figures of this passage. The Galatians, Abraham and Christ. So the Galatians are the focus of verses one through five. We read. "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This was originally a a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit written to the Galatians. Imagine being there in that Galatian church and hearing this read to you for the first time. Paul has been talking about himself and then all of a sudden, boom, oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? And again in verse 3, Are you so foolish? And these are strong words. It's almost startling. It reminds me of a time when I was, I was watching a lady cross the street and, and her mind was just elsewhere and a car was coming and it was about to hit her and I yelled. Because that's what you do when you see someone heading towards danger. The Galatians were mindlessly wandering into danger. And that's the picture that Paul is painting. Bewitched means to be put under a spell. Paul is not saying that they are literally under a spell, but that that they are acting that way. They are acting as though they are in a daze strung along by someone else's will. And the word foolish, which shows up twice, goes along with that picture. Foolish means that they are not thinking things through. It means that they have turned off all discernment and they are not truly seeing something for what it is. And they're just mindlessly wandering into danger. So with urgency, Paul calls them to wake up and come to their senses. And he points them back to their initial experience. How they came to Christ. You see, they had lost sight of Jesus. So Paul turns their eyes back on Christ. In verse 1, Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before their eyes. It was not literally that they saw a portrait of him, but that in the preaching of the gospel, they clearly saw who he was and what he had done. The gospel was as clear as day, and the heart of it was not something to do, but someone to believe. It's not about doing, but trusting. In verses two through five, Paul asks them a series of obvious questions about their initial experience. And it all boils down to doing versus believing. Verse two, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, was it by obeying the Old Testament law or by believing the gospel of Christ? Was it doing or believing? And the obvious answer is. Believing in verse five, God gave them his spirit and clearly worked among them by miracles. He left his genuine mark among them. And Paul asks, was it by their doing or by their believing? And the obvious answer, believing believing. Through and through, it's about believing Paul wants them to see beyond a shadow of a doubt that their relationship with God is built solely upon believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how often the word spirit shows up in this section. It's in almost every single verse. He focuses on the spirit because throughout the New Testament, this is the central mark that someone belongs to God. When the very first group of Gentiles came to faith in Christ, people didn't know what to think. They had never seen this before. So they didn't know quite how to handle it. But the Holy Spirit was the number one evidence that God had approved of the Gentiles. Listen to Peter's conclusion in Acts 15:8. God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted the Gentiles. By giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. And this is huge in Paul's argument against the false teachers. From what we know about these false teachers and what we see in the context of the book of Galatians, it seems like the false teachers were saying, you do not quite belong to God. You're not fully accepted until you observe the Old Testament law. Essentially, it's like they're saying to the Galatians, you're like a visitor in the household of God. Yes, because of Jesus, he's let you in the door. But you're not a son or daughter yet. There's more you have to do. In other words, if you want to get in good with God, there's more you have to do. If you want to be in his inner circle, there's more you have to do. And Paul is saying, what? No, no, the spirit is the proof that you truly belong to God. We call him the spirit of adoption. He has adopted you as sons and daughters. He has given you the spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. And how do we receive that spirit? By doing or by believing? By believing, he says. The Spirit comes to us the moment we trust in Christ. The moment we trust in Christ, we are fully accepted. You are not a visitor in the household of God. You are a beloved child of God, he says. You are nearer to Him than you ever dared to believe. And you always will be. And that is the argument of verses 1-5. through That is what the Galatians desperately needed to hear. The Galatians had bought the message of the false gospel, which says there's more you have to do. And what I want us to see is that if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. In chapter five, verse seven of Galatians, it says they were running well. In our passage today, it says they were willing to suffer for their faith. We're talking about solid believers here and yet they bought into this false gospel if it can happen to them we ourselves are not immune we are not immune from buying into this false gospel which says there's more you have to do to get in good with god we not we might not say it but sometimes it's like it's it's lying underneath the surface of our actions Sometimes we believe that God's pleasure in us depends on our performance for Him. We try to do this and do this and do this to win His favor, that special place in His household. But when we fail, it's like we're losing it. I gotta have my quiet time. Check. Gotta say the right thing. Check. Gotta go here. Check. Gotta do this. Check. And when we don't, We no longer feel like we're in good with God. It's like we've entered the door, but he's in the other room. And what's happened is we have lost sight of Christ like the Galatians. And we're chasing after performance and chasing and chasing and chasing. And that is what keeps us on this internal treadmill. And I'm not saying it's not important to be spending time with the Lord every day. The Bible calls us to make every effort to grow in our faith. But this is not what causes us to be in good with God. This is not what brings us into a relationship with Him. And the false gospel applies more broadly than this as well. It's the underlying mentality that we have to obtain something for ourselves that Christ has already obtained for us at the cross. We have to obtain something for ourselves that Christ has already obtained for us at the cross. And this, is, this message is told to us over and over and over by our society. And it can bewitch us. For example, sometimes we believe the message that our significance is found in what we do. So our efforts revolve around getting the right job and keeping the right job and and getting a better job. And if that is on the line, we scramble. And single people, there's a pervasive message out there that landing Mr. or Mrs. Right will give us a sense of completion or even identity. And so our efforts revolve around finding that person, winning that person, wearing the right clothes, saying the right things. Sometimes we believe the message that Our security is measured by dollar signs. And so our efforts revolve around an over-preoccupation with salaries and expenses, bills and balances. And sometimes we believe the message that our worth comes from what we accomplish. And so our efforts revolve around productivity, getting as much done as we possibly can. A good day is a productive day, and a bad day is one where we don't accomplish much. And at the end of the day, We are measuring our worth by the work of our hands. And it's not that these are bad things. Many of them are good things. But they can't give us what only God can give. They can't ultimately give us significance, completion, identity, security, and worth. And so we end up chasing that job and chasing that relationship and chasing that money and chasing those accomplishments. And soon we end up on that internal treadmill going and going and going. And it leaves us feeling weary and frustrated and depleted spiritually. I promised you at the beginning that we would learn something from each of these major figures in our passage today. What we learn from the Galatians is that their predicament can easily become our own. We can be bewitched by the messages of our time, stuck on that treadmill, chasing and chasing and chasing, weary and frustrated and depleted. So what is the solution? So far, it's only been hinted at. It becomes clearer in the next section, focusing on Abraham. We read in verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In this section, Paul begins his argument from Scripture and he starts with Abraham. The false teachers were saying that you have to embrace the rites and customs of Judaism in order to be fully acceptable to God. And so it's like Paul turns the tables on them. I love this. In essence, he says, actually, I'll show you how the father of the Jewish people became acceptable to God in the first place. I will show you how this all started. And so he takes them back to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Abraham is concerned that he's advanced in years and he still doesn't have a son. He doesn't have an heir. And so one night, God brought him out of his tent and under this vast, starry night sky in the countryside, he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he promised Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And then, this, and then comes the verse that Paul cited in our passage. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what does that mean? To be counted righteous means that he was instantly given the gift of right standing before God. Boom. And it wasn't that he was perfect. He had just got done lying about his wife to protect his own neck. And it wasn't because he observed a certain ritual. This is before he observed the rite of circumcision, not after. It was all because of his faith. He believed God. He trusted not in his own ability but in God's ability. And this is how it all started. This was God's plan all along. And so Paul is making himself clear. Those who follow in Abraham's footsteps, those who are his truly his descendants, who are numbered among those stars, are those who have faith. These are the one who, ones who walk in his legacy and share in his blessing. So what is this blessing? We use that word a lot, most often when people sneeze. In verse 8, Paul defines it as, this is the blessing, to be justified by faith. Justification is a legal term. It means to receive the verdict, you are right before God, once and for all. Abraham was blessed with this verdict. It was a gift given to him because he believed. And so his true descendants, who have faith like him, receive this same blessing. They hear the verdict once and for all. You are right before God, justified by faith. And I find it so striking, because that is what it means fundamentally to be blessed. It's not about a house or a car or good health. Or happiness, or riches. It's about receiving a saving relationship with God that I have done nothing to deserve. That is what it means to be blessed. And so that even on my worst days, I am infinitely blessed beyond what I ever dream or deserve. We are blessed to belong to God and everything that flows from that. The greatest blessing of all is justification by faith so this is where our solution emerges on the horizon. When we are stuck on that treadmill, going and going and going, we must remember justification by faith. We must remember the verdict once and for all, you are right before God. And that is when we begin to rest in the gospel. Well, how so? Imagine if your life was lived out in a giant courtroom that was like this dome that surrounded everywhere that you go. And every day of life was like an ongoing court case. Day. After day, after day. If you go to work, you're on trial. When you're at home, you are on trial. When you're in the car, you're on trial. When you're asleep, you're on trial. When you wake up, you're on trial. When you go on vacation, you're on trial. When you go to the store, you're on trial. Everywhere you go, the trial goes on. And you constantly see the evidence for you and against you. For you and against you. And it's constantly stacking up before your eyes. And so you ask the question, "Am I in good with God? Well, I know I have Jesus, but I did this and this, and that was a good day. but then the next day was not. A- am I significant? Well, this is for me, but then this is against me. Am I complete?" This is for me and and this is against me. Am I secure? This is for me and and I see this against me. Do I have worth? Some days yes, some days no. For me and against me. For me and against me. This is the life of complete unrest. And yet that is how we sometimes live. And now in the midst of that, Imagine the gavel slamming down and hearing the verdict. You are right before God. Once and for all, court adjourned. You are in good with God. Case closed. You have significance, wholeness, security, and worth. That come from belonging to him. We rest in the gospel. When we hear the verdict once and for all. You are right with God. Court is over. What we learn from Abraham. Is the blessing of justification by faith. The blessing of no longer being on trial. And we rest in that. But at this point. It's possible for the false teachers to say, okay, well, believing is one way to be acceptable to God, but observing the law is still another way. And so Paul responds to this by focusing on the role of Christ in verses 10 through 14. We read, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. In these verses, Paul is making two arguments about the Old Testament law, and once again he is pointing them back to Scripture. The argument in verses 11 through 12 can be broken down in this way. No one is made right, by before God by the law because scripture says we are made right by believing and the law is not about believing but doing in short the law cannot save but in verse 10 it goes even deeper paul makes another claim the law puts us under a curse Because you have to keep it perfectly in order to avoid the curse. And no one can do that. It does not lead to life. It leads to a curse. That is what the law brings. It is not the way to blessing. It is actually the way to a curse. And the curse means being rejected by God forever. And the problem is, none of us can avoid it. In Romans 1, it says that either we disobey the written law or we disobey the law Written in our hearts, but that we can't avoid it. No one can obey the law perfectly because the Bible does say that we all sin. And so that leaves us here. On this way that leads to the curse under the curse. And so this is the question. How will God justify us by faith and still be true to himself, not bend his own rules, but deal with our sin? I once heard it illustrated this way Imagine that I had committed a heinous crime, and as a penalty, I was locked up into prison for life with no bail. And so, Pastor Ralph, being the man that he is, takes it upon himself. To come and, and, and he goes to the judge and says, listen, I want Kerry to be set free. So I'm actually going to come in and serve his term for him. I'm going to serve life in prison without bail. And the judge says, wow, that's amazing. Um, I guess we can do this. Never seen it before, but let's try it. And so right before that exchange happens, the judge is looking at the record and he notices something. Pastor Ralph has committed the exact same crime that I have. So he throws Ralph and I in the cell together. And then and then just imagine that Mosaic Crimson and and Mosaic Cafe hear about this. So they're like, no, we're going to get we're going to get them out of prison. So they all come together. This motley crew is coming to jail and they say, okay, We are going to serve their double sentences. We are going to. Take it among ourselves and they can be set free. We will serve out this sentence in jail. And the judge says, great. And we've never done this before, but sure, we're going to try it. And then right before the exchange happens, the judge is looking at the record and he notices something. Mosaic Crimson and Mosaic Cafe, they have all committed the exact same crime that Ralph and I have committed. And so they get thrown into the cell with us. And then. And then actually all of good news comes in and they try to make this exchange and they say, we'll serve out these sentences. And the judge says, great. But then he looks at the record and he, he sees that we've all committed the exact same crime. And so we all are in this cell. And then through our connections, Iowa tries to come in <laughs> and exchange our place. But they've committed the exact same crime and they're thrown in the cell and then, the, and then the U.S. says, well, if Iowa's going in, we're all going in. <laughs> because what will we do without pork? <laughs> and so all the citizens of Iowa and the U.S. go there and say, well, we'll make the exchange. And the judge says, great. But then he notices they've all committed the same crime. And pretty soon this gets on CNN and the world finds out about it. And the world says, OK, we're going to we're going to make this thing happen. And the judge says, OK. But he looks at the record and he sees that the entire world has committed the exact same crime. Who can set us free? Who can set us free? And then Jesus comes along and says, you know what? I will serve all of their penalties. I'll take on all of that punishment. And the judge says, okay, I've heard this before. But he looks at the record and there's no crime. And so he takes our place. He pays the penalty. He endured the curse for us, the penalty for our crime, and then gave us life. It says he redeemed us, which means he set us free. That's what verses 13 and 14 are about. This is how God justifies us by faith, yet still deals with our sin. An exchange has taken place that no one else could accomplish. You see, God dealt with our sin by paying for it himself. And it was paid in full. Not 50%, not 90%, not 99%, but paid in full. If someone bought me a coat, I wouldn't go back to the store and say, Well, I'd actually like to pay for a little bit of this myself. It would turn me around and say, The payment has already been made. It reminds me of my favorite verse from the song It Is Well with My Soul. It says this. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. So what is left for us to do? A crowd of people once asked Jesus a similar question. In John chapter 6, this crowd came up to him and said, Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Believe in the one he sent. That is what we rest in. What we learn from Jesus is that resting in the gospel, as it has been said before, means resting in the finished work of Christ. The cross is the key that sets us free from this internal treadmill. We don't have to wonder about our relationship with God. We don't have to wonder about our significance, wholeness, security, and worth. Those questions were fully and finally answered at the cross. Rest. In the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the title of this sermon is. Relearning to rest. Because it's something that we almost have to teach ourselves daily. It's not just something that we realize once. And then boom. Okay. I'll never struggle again. Our tendency is that even though we've been set free. Even though those handcuffs have been taken off. We step back on that treadmill. Day in and day out. And so every day we have to relearn to rest in the finished work of Christ. It's about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Soldiers don't put on their helmets once and then forget about it. They put it on every day. We have to put the helmet of salvation on every day. Remembering our salvation so it guards our minds and then shapes the way we see the world. Preaching the gospel to ourselves sounds like saying... Lord, I haven't performed perfect today, and I never will. But I trust in Christ's performance and not my own. It's about reminding ourselves, my worth is not on trial today. It was already established at the cross. I have been bought with the highest price. And no one and nothing can change that. It's about reminding ourselves, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood We're called to step off of the treadmill and rest in the finished work of Christ. And so I want to end with this invitation. This is for people who have trusted in Christ for years or for people who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you are weary, frustrated, and depleted, if you're just worn out from the treadmill, I want you to hear these words. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.